I don't know, Jay. Yeah. Are we ready? We're ready. We're ready. <clears throat> we didn't even get to say hello first. I know. Okay. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. What happens when I don't get to the studio on time? No early chit-chat. I'm Kyle Rizal. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday. It is the 18th day of April. We talk about uh, space on this show a lot because both Kimberly and I like space, and it's cool, and it's fun. Also, um, it's important for a whole lot of reasons, and we're going to talk about some of that today. Yes, more specifically, we're going to talk about the space economy, which sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel, but it actually is a large and growing and increasingly regulated industry. So here to make us smart about all things space is Namrata Gaswani, a scholar on space policy and co-author of the book Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Kimberly and Kai. It's a pleasure. Ours too. So I guess we should start with the basics. What is the space economy? Like what's included and how would you define it? Sure. So when I think about the space economy, I would include the entire space launch system, by which I mean rockets. So some of the rockets would be the space launch system uh, that is developed by NASA, Starship that is going to be tested by SpaceX Falcon 9. I would also include a navigation, communication, uh, container ship traffic uh, that is tracked through uh, global positioning systems. And I will also include government programs like, for example, uh, NASA's Artemis program that is planning to launch the next uh, woman and the uh, next person of color to the moon by 2024. So when you think about the space economy today, if you think in terms of numbers, it's about $400 billion. And by 2030, it is estimated to become about $1 trillion. Mm -hmm. And in the book that you mentioned that I co-authored with Peter Garretson, we are also including a space economy to come in the next 20, 30 years, which includes uh, in-space economy. So the economy that would be developed in space itself, which would actually result in a trillion-dollar economy by 2040. So not just $1 trillion, but about $20 trillion. So that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. So, so let's riff on that in-space economy thing, right? Because mm-hmm. once we get to and have a, a, a foothold, a permanent foothold on the moon, then what? So if you look at the several programs that are being launched by the U.S., China, Japan, India— So the idea is that once you have a presence on the moon that is permanent, then you utilize that particular presence to extract resources on the moon. So the moon is rich in resources like helium-3 that can be used for nuclear propulsion capability, water ice that can be turned into life support, which is oxygen and rocket fuel. And then the moon is also rich in rare earth minerals like aluminum, iron ore, platinum that can be used for construction. So... uh, When you think about, for example, China's space program, the idea is that once you have a permanent presence in the moon that they have signed on with Russia, you then use those resources to build rockets that can be launched from the moon, which is 22 times more energy efficient than Earth, and then become a deep space uh, faring nation and also build into your space economy. Hmm. 
So right after they announced the astronauts for the Artemis mission, I, I spoke with NASA astronaut Reed, Reed Weissman, who's the commander of the Artemis II mission. And I asked him kind of cheekily how likely it would be if I wanted to retire on the moon, could I actually do it in my lifetime? So we're going to play his answer to that question, and I want to get your reaction to it. In our lifetime, in your lifetime, I have to say it is realistic. And the reason that I, let me just say why I think that right now is uh, NASA set our sights on Mars. And as part of going to Mars, uh, we're going to go learn how to work around the moon. And what we started to see was private industry just starting to fill in all the gaps. We have, uh, you know, small private companies like Intuitive Machines. It's going to land uh, a rover on the moon here uh, shortly. And we're going to hand over low Earth orbit to commercial industry. Um, Axiom Space is right down the road. They're building everywhere. Uh, and then who can pass up SpaceX? They're going to build our lander for the moon. Agree or disagree? I agree, because if you look at some of the programs that are put in place, as he mentioned, NASA's Artemis Accord that wants to have a Artemis base camp by 2036. China has one of the most ambitious space program, and they are planning to build a research station by 2036 as well, which is just a decade away. And uh, if you think about our lifetime, say 2050 or a generation to come 2060, 2075, I actually see that that particular base will lead to further industrial scaling on the moon, and then you'll have real estate. And uh, And to make my point even more stronger, I would say that in our lifetime today, we are going to see the first commercial landing on the moon by the end of this month, which is Japan's iSpace company that is going mm -hmm. to uh, become the first commercial landing if it succeeds. And what is more, even more interesting and to uh, further vindicate my point is that they are going to uh, carry out the first resource extraction on the moon and to sell it to NASA as a proof of concept. So it's actually happening today. And so I see that future coming and realistically coming as uh, capabilities are being demonstrated. Since you mentioned the commercialization of space, uh, Elon Musk, discuss. So uh, when you think about uh, Elon Musk and in terms of commercialization of space, I think one of the most uh, important development in the last, say, 20 years has been the fact that we have commercial companies now that are investing in a key technology, for example, like reusable space and reusable rockets. And so what reusable rockets do is that they bring down the cost of launch. And so I am an academic that talks a lot about democratizing space. So space access has been very expensive till SpaceX and Blue Origin came along because rockets were expendable and they could not be reused again. So with reusability, the cost of a ton to low Earth orbit comes down a huge amount in terms mm. of scale. And so what commercialization has done is that it has done three very wonderful things. One is that it has built into the promise that we will have easier access to space. And a person like me or a person, for example, in Africa or in Northeast India can access space. Second, the entire supply chain has become commercialized as well. So for example, the landing system on the moon, building low earth constellations that support satellite internet that is going to bring access to areas that are not uh, good in terms of fiber connectivity. And finally, what I noticed is that 
unlike the Cold War, where space was very much dictated by state-funded programs, today you have an exponential rise of the commercial space industry, not just in the U.S., but in Japan, in China, in India, where young people are excited and uh, hoping to contribute to the access to space and make it more democratic. So that's what commercialization has done today. It, sorry, it, it's it's one thing, though, to have the supply chain on Earth and the rocketry on Earth uh, controlled by uh, private uh, companies. I wonder, though, if you have any concerns about the in-space economy, the resource extraction, being in the hands of, and let's take Elon Musk out of this for a second, being in the hands of even a benevolent billionaire. Sure. So uh, as we know, space is regulated by the Outer Space Treaty, and there are four other important treaties along with the Outer Space Treaties. But one of the concerns I have is that if you think about the in-space economy that we talk about in our book, which is about uh, $20 trillion by 2040, and according to the Chinese estimates, is going to be about $10 trillion annually the cislunar space, which is the space between the Earth and the moon. Mm -hmm. So one of the concerns I have is that the current regulatory mechanisms that were built during the Cold War, yeah. which was a lot about ensuring the placement, uh, that ensuring that we do not have placement of weapons of mass destruction in space, did not anticipate a future where you will have countries and companies building capacity to extract resources on the moon. So one of the concerns that I have written about is that what happens, for example, if China and Russia goes and builds a permanent structure, say, on the lunar South Pole, where the resources are, like water ice and helium-3, and because they have a permanent structure, they do not give permission for another country or company to land there. What then? What are the dispute resolution mechanisms? What are the guidelines? We still do not have that. What about fair distribution that uh, some of the legal treaties talk about? So space is a province of mankind. And so there has to be some level of equitable distribution of those resources. We do not have the guidelines. And that's a big concern of mine. Uh, we are working towards it, but uh, consensus has not been reached as yet. And who gets to decide? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the mm -hmm. mechanism for setting these rules? Because, I mean, if you're talking about the United Nations or any of the intergovernmental organizations that we have already, it's not like they're super great at enforcement. <laughs> you know, see climate <laughs> yeah. change. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point to make. So, yes, if you look at the United Nations, the United Nations Office in Outer Space Affairs is the body that looks at uh, space regulation. And so uh, like every other international treaty or law, one of the biggest uh, lacunae is the lack of enforcement. So if a country does not behave according to treaty obligation, who does the enforcement? So today uh, you would have, and this is interesting. So when you think about the commercialization of space, according to the Outer Space Treaty, states are responsible for how private actors behave in space. And in case something goes wrong, states are held liable. So even if Elon Musk talks about, for example, a 75 million city in Mars in a particular year, say 2075, he's still registered to the United States and the United States is responsible. Would, would you invest $100,000 in the space economy? Let's say, let's say it's your retirement, would you? I would invest because, one, 
There is, of course, the possibility of profit, which is very clear. You can see it from companies that are investing in space. The other thing is that if you are wedded to a particular future that you want to make democratic, I would definitely invest my hundred thousand hmm. uh, dollars if it if it if it makes it more democratic for generations to come. Mm-hmm. Namrata Gaswani is a scholar on space policy and co-author of the book with Peter Gerritsen, Scramble for the Skies, Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. Thank you so much. You definitely made me smarter on this. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. That is very encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well... Well, what do you think is tough? Because so, so, I was latching so, so, so on clearly to a different part well, of the conversation. So, so here's the thing. I was just thinking about the title of the book, Great Power yeah. Competition, right? And it's not great mm-hmm. power top competition as as has traditionally been understood because there right. are commercial entities in there. And I know I get hung up on this, but look, we're not going to Mars unless Elon Musk says we're going to Mars, right? Because right. And I don't want Elon Musk it, controlling my air supply. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so I think there are there's a whole lot of stuff that has to happen before we can... Before not safe is the wrong word. I think there are some things that have to happen before people can be reassured that um, the whims and capriciousness will not govern what happens in outer space. You know, I mean, it becomes the absolute uh, sort of epitome of a company town where <laughs> right, 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 right. That's exactly that right. That's you need if you're talking about yeah, if you're talking about commercial operations on the lunar surface, let's just say that, not even considering Mars or, you know, that's everything. That's your access to communication. That's your access to food, water, air, um, which is, that's pretty frightening. And, you know, not that governments are always the most benevolent of entities. To be clear. Um, It is, it is kind of worrying, like you said. However... I'm latched onto the part of the conversation where everyone seems to agree that it would literally be possible in our lifetimes for, you know, like, finish out your, your life on the moon. I think that's pretty freaking cool. I'm going to leave it right there. I'm not going to argue with that at all. It would, <laughs> it would be super cool. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have thoughts on the state of the space economy or your own plans for lunar retirement, our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org, and we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. 
You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. Okay, news. You go first. Um, one of them is kind of funky and, and weird, but I thought it was really cool. Axios has a story about the end of the barcode. So, really? you know, yeah, lots of us have been exposed to QR codes, mm. especially since the pandemic and people not wanting to touch things. And yes, QR codes have their sort of risks and things like that. But um, the big retail organization, um, there's a worldwide push where the retail industry is doing something called Sunrise 2027, where they're going to transition from the 12-digit barcode with the vertical lines mm -hmm. to a two-dimensional web-enabled version that looks a lot more like a QR code. And there's a group called GS1US, I guess is how you say that, a nonprofit standards organization that apparently oversees the broad barcode world. This mm -hmm. exists. Um, and by 2027, those are going to be the only barcodes that are accepted at registers globally. So wow. that means that all the packages and things are going to slowly but surely start transitioning from the barcodes that, you know, give the little beep that we know and love to <laughs> these these barcodes, which aren't even, I guess, going to have bars anymore. So do we even call them barcodes? We're still going to call them whatever. barcodes. We are still going to call yeah. them barcodes. Okay. Anyway, it'll have a lot of um, extra information that it will, you know, connect to, like... Um, supply chain information and might make it easier to track for recalls and things like that. So anyway, I just thought that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And it'll be interesting to notice, you know, on the backs of packages, that transition, you know, because people are, especially in the self-checkout world, mm -hmm. I wonder how many people are going to be looking for old barcodes and not find it All and the people. only see a QR All code. All the people. <laughs> yes. All the people. Um, my other story is just because I cannot ignore it is uh, the fact the Fox News Dominion voting yeah. systems lawsuit. The jury has been selected. That thing is going to trial. Um, I bet Fox really wished they could settle that um, because that's well, I mean, it's not it's not an open and shut case. This is going to be a tough one. The United States has notoriously high standards for defamation cases and. Dominion has a lot of evidence, but it, a very high bar to surpass to show actual malice. But what was interesting in the Washington Post, they were reporting on some of the jury instructions for that the judge gave the jurors for this very high stakes case. And some of those things were, you know, you have to, where is it? Um, from this point forward until you retire from your service, that is, from this point forward until you retire, you have to fight human nature mm. and not discuss the case. Mm -hmm. case. Don't do any detective work. Don't do any kind of research. Stay away from social media. Don't compromise yourself. The law does not allow you to be influenced by sympathy, prejudice, or public <laughs> opinion. Can you imagine no. how hard no. it is when there's so much coverage and news and noise in the political moment that you're in mm -hmm. to disconnect from social media, 
try to set aside everything you've already heard about it and literally just make your decision based on the facts of the case. That stuff yeah. is is really hard. Yeah. And if they don't, then they could jeopardize the trial. I mean, we saw this with some of the Trump things. And uh, anyway, I just, I, I'll be watching it. I find it fascinating. There's a lot of money involved and a lot of precedent that could be set for the media industry moving forward, for sure. I, I agree with all that. It's totally fascinating, very high stakes, and I will definitely be watching. And and more power to those jurors. It's going to be a long mm-hmm. haul. Uh, yeah, okay, so I'm continuing with my week of wonkery here uh, on uh, this podcast. Uh, yesterday was, was all kinds of working papers. Today is just simply a news report, and it's from Bloomberg, and it points out that, um, as you know, we've been getting uh, quarterly bank earnings end of last week in the beginning of this. Here's the headline. The four biggest banks in this economy, which are Citigroup, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, and Bank of America, in the first quarter of the year, which is January through March, wrote off $3.4 billion in bad consumer loans. Now, in the grand scheme of things, $3.4 billion to those four institutions is not a huge amount of money, but it is a 73% increase in bad loan write-offs in the first three months of the year from a year ago. Why does that matter? Well, if we're thinking about uh, a possible recession later this year, parenthetically, by the way, I was talking about things on uh, the way to school with my daughter the other day, and we were talking about a recession mm-hmm. and the economy and this and that. And she said, wait, I thought we were already in a recession. And I said, oh, mm. my God, I've wasted my life. Because if my daughter thinks we're I, in a recession, I just, it just, I can't even. Because we're not, people. Well, wait a minute. We're not. But wait a minute. We don't know that yet. Because well, no, don't they usually decide it, if we're in a recession is, after it's the it, fact? So it, we could it be in It is always lagging. Yet. We're not in a recession yet. I've, I will. We're not in a recession yet. We're not. We're not. Okay. We're not. Point, point of the story, though, was my 15-year-old thinks <laughs> we are in a recession, and oh, my God. Anyway, so the big banks are writing off 73% more in bad consumer loans this year than they did last year. That points to a slowing consumer sector, right? Consumers are having trouble making their payments, and as we all know, spending on Spending by or on behalf of consumers makes up 75% of this entire economy. That is not a great sign. And I just think people ought to know that. That's it. Yeah, but I feel like I just saw a story about people really racking up credit card debt at the moment. Yeah, Yeah, uh, here it is. It's a Reuters story. Um, More U.S. consumers are falling behind on payments. Consumers are starting to fall Mm -hmm. behind on credit card and loan payment as the economy softens. Yeah, which is what you're talking about as well. So look out. That's all I'm saying. There we go. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, right. That's it for the news fix. Uh, time to do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, last week was our deep dive on AI tools like ChatGPT. And we asked how you all are using chatbots. And here's what a few of you had to say. I wanted to send you a note on how I used ChatGPT recently. I'm a senior in high school, and I use ChatGPT to help me learn math and occasionally physics. I recently used ChatGPT to tell my kids an Easter-themed bedtime story. My uncle turned 70 over this past weekend, and I wanted to write something funny in his birthday card. I prompted it with literally, what is something funny to write in a 70th birthday card? And it actually gave me back some pretty decent material. ChatGPT is terrible at calculating math. However, it's great at describing the steps required to complete a math question. And the robotic voice told us a story of the Easter Bunny forgetting its basket of eggs, decorated potatoes, and gave those to the children instead. I decided to go with, as they say, 
age is just a number. Yours just happens to be really high, which <laughs> I to think gave him a little chuckle. Anyway, thanks for making us smart. That's, that's pretty funny. That's that's not bad. That's not bad. That was John in Houston, Zara in Spokane, and Zeke in Fort Worth, and I guess also ChatGPT. Yeah, that was pretty good. I like that. Yeah, that was fun. All right. Uh, let's see. We are on our way out, and that, of course, means uh, the Make Me Smart question. What is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Here you go. Hi, Kai, Kimberly, and this is Dixie from Chicagoland. Something I once thought that I knew and later found out that I was wrong about is the idea that when people said things like, picture this in your mind, I thought it was a figure of speech. I did not realize that some people can actually see images in their head until I was an adult and eventually came across a concept known as aphantasia, that people like me cannot see images in our head. We just don't have that. I don't dream in images. I don't see images in my mind. So we don't realize that when people say things, they mean it literally instead of figuratively. Have a great day. Wow. I'm about to go down such a no rabbit joke, hole right? on this. I did not know about this. I I often like try to do meditation and they have all these visual visualization exercises and they're like, imagine, you know, a babbling stream or imagine, you know, a flame or a candle. And it, I really, really struggle. I can't like see that really? image in my head. But I do, on the other hand, have extraordinarily vivid dreams. And so I wonder... I'm, I'm going to be reading so much. I was, I was, I was just going to say, let us know how your rabbit hole exploration goes. My yeah, goodness. yeah, that's super interesting. So thanks, Dixie. Um, do, can mm. you visualize images yeah. very easily? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. But, but, and I don't know if this correlates, I don't really remember my dreams very much at all. Oh my gosh, I remember my dreams quite clearly. And oh. They're like extraordinarily vivid. Huh. Hmm. Well. All right, I will. I will be down that rabbit report, report hole back. and hopefully not find something that was made up by ChatGPT. <laughs> All right, what is something that you thought you knew but found out you were wrong about? You can leave us a voice message with your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number again is five zero eight eight two seven six two seven eight, also known as five zero eight UB Smart. Oh, Jay's engineering. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonia Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Jay Siebold. Gary O'Keefe's going to mix it down later on. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Laudner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Et voila frantically googling this term yeah that'd be wild actually if that's if it turns out that you have sort of that thing if a fantasia that'd be wild yeah i mean feels like that'd be something you'd need like a professional diagnosis not yeah. like a yeah. web md <laughs> diagnosis yeah no no shit no shade on web web md or anything fair enough We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. 
This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.